This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. is a full-time accredited investor and real estate developer. As the leader of the multifamily movement, he has helped over 300 people acquire over $100 million worth of multifamily real estate and achieve what he calls rent and mortgage freedom. In less than eight years, he has built a personal real estate portfolio of 10 multifamily homes with 40 apartments in Brooklyn, Oakland, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans, in addition to being a lead investor in several black-owned real estate funds. In 2020, he launched the Buy Back Baton Rouge campaign and fund with Anthony Kimball uh, to redevelop the Eddie Robinson Senior Historic District in Mid-City Baton Rouge, and they are focused on reclaiming a 12-block neighborhood with hundreds of units of high-quality, affordable workforce housing, commercial real estate, and businesses that foster job creation and other amenities like health care, food, education, and entertainment. And together, they are raising over $3 million, $3 million from accredited and sophisticated investors, as well as through crowdfunding. Uh, he's an author, a TEDx speaker. He's been on MSNBC, Forbes, INC. I mean, he's been all the places. He's spoken at over 100 different colleges and universities. And he's someone who I consider a part of my community group uh, because he is one of the awesome parents from the Little Son of People Collective. Uh, Julian Gordon, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today thank you so much i appreciate the invitation i'm gonna also preemptively thank you for dealing with our weird connection on the internet for our zoom here today <laughs> we're connecting in multiple ways all right. all uh, right. we gonna make it work brother we gonna make it work uh so i i've already yeah. told the audience i know you personally uh you are someone who yeah. has been a part of my extended village so i of course send much love to you and the queen and the beautiful family uh, but i want to talk this morning yeah. about your efforts to really engage in real estate in a way that is not so much about your personal pocket but is really about uh how you are able to provide benefit to others while ensuring you are also uh able to do so for yourself can you Help us unpack what do you mean when you talk about the multifamily unit and what is your philosophy of home ownership and how does that relate to the principle of Ujamaa? Yes. So the multifamily movement is a movement of a few thousand people who are committed to creating what I call regenerational wealth and entering into the asset class. So what happens with black communities and not just black communities, almost all communities, the American dream is set up to cause people to fail. I want you to come in with nothing and leave with nothing. And so this is why grandma has to sell her single family home, which you thought was going to be in the family forever, because while she goes on a fixed income, property taxes go up, maintenance now kicks in. Um, uh, siblings or kids have actually moved to other places and nobody actually wants the house, right? And then so grandma ends up selling, going down south, and now we lose a foothold in a market that is appreciated and now is high cost, right? So we see this over and over and over again. Siblings can't agree on uh, how to hold the home. Many people have been living there for free, not contributing to the mortgage, not contributing to the maintenance of the home. And so while grandma and grandpa made a great play, right? Nobody was there to maintain the property. So anytime you hear the word mortgage, um, you look at the number on the word mortgage, which covers your principal interest, taxes and insurance. But nobody talks about the big M at the end, which is maintenance. You have to have money set aside to actually continue to invest in that property for it to maintain its structural integrity and for it to hold its value. And so that's what we see happen. This is why grandma's house looks run down because there was enough to pay the mortgage, but there was not enough to maintain the asset at its level. So while that asset would be worth in Brooklyn, 
1.5 million if it was upheld and maintained it's now only worth 800,000 so now the family is out $700,000 of equity uh they decide to mm. liquidate and sell because nobody has the money to put back into the home and therefore we lose a fold in a community that was once all black and so what is happening all across the country uh we've been using the word gentrification the real terminology is actually colonization Ooh. gentrification is actually yeah, the gentrification is actually the upliftment of a community. You live a few blocks from uh, away from the greenest block in Brooklyn, right? And the greenest yep. block in Brooklyn is primarily black owners. So they came together to say, we're going to make, our, we're going to win this award by beautifying our front yards, right? And and um, doing the facades of our homes and making sure that this block is kept, right? That was just a decision amongst black owners. And guess what happened when they get that award, Lori? The mm. property values go up. They gentrified their own block, even though they're black. So gentrification is actually the upliftment of community. We've been afraid to use the real word, which has actually been occurring, which is colonization. Colonization is when outsiders come in and try to displace the natives of a community. And so mm. because colonization has such a negative tinge to it, we don't use that word. But that's exactly what's happening today is colonization, not gentrification. Gentrification is a good thing. I don't want my people to have to live in poor conditions or the hood forever. We want to elevate the standard of living for everyone. So for me and my philosophy, uh, there's a, also a negative um, narrative around around landlords, right? Um, especially in New That's York, right. cancel rent yep. and things of that nature. Um, uh, there are, there's a different, there are different types of landlords. There are slumlords and then there are love lords. And I train people to be love lords who provide quality, quality, affordable housing for people who haven't had it, who have been victim to slumlords for a long time. Slumlords are people, you know, uh, with the black hats and things of that nature. You know what I'm talking about. Slumlords oh, right. are people like that who do not care about you, your family, or our community whatsoever, who will not take care of anything, will not fix anything, and literally are trying to squeeze you out so that they can get you to move, right? And so that they can go there, do renovations, uh, and double the rents for that particular unit that you and your family have been in for 10 years. And so um, we have to make a distinction. Not all landlords are bad. Many landlords are small investors uh, like myself who uh, also have families. And so this whole notion of cancel rent and even what the CDC did by making it optional to pay rent um, is really unethical because uh, these are people who will now, in many cases, have to lose their home, even though they were just trying to get a leg up in the American dream by buying an asset, right, and getting passive income as opposed to doing what the American dream tells you to do, which is to pursue active income. The only way to get free in this country is actually through passive income, where your assets are working harder than you do for money, right? Um, and so uh, that was a, that was a grab at the middle class um, to to get the middle class to be in a poor financial situation because, you know, people were furloughed, people got laid off. And so if I'm a property owner, I have a four family in Brooklyn and my job cuts down my hours during the pandemic. And now the CDC says that I can't uh, I can't actually collect rent or my tenants have the option to not pay and things of that nature. And I can't wow. evict. Then that puts me and my family in a financially precarious situation unless I had Section 8 tenants. My my 70 uh, percent of my portfolio is Section 8. So my rent is guaranteed on time. Right. And online, no matter whether the economy is up or down. So that's how I secure my portfolio from states, in particular states like California, New York, where um, where the laws are very tenant friendly and not landlord friendly. Um, and this is how you make sure that that asset stays within your family name for generations to come.
Okay, whew, brother, I, I should have put a timer out because I don't know, I think you might have gotten more words into a shorter period of time than even I do, and that is saying a lot. Uh, so let's unpack this a bit. I want to talk first about this distinction yeah. between slumlord, no, 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 not even that one. I want to talk about gentrification versus colonization because yes. the way you described gentrification is the idea that you are improving the community uh, and you are right. doing so not with the displacement ethic did i hear that that part of it correctly correct correct so it's then it's a mm, okay so then how is it that when we think about well i guess you explained that in the next point where you talked about what it means to to colonize as opposed to gentrify because if we're talking about and, and i'm looking up the definition of gentrification and you're right it's the process of making something more refined or respectable uh the process whereby the okay. character of poor neighborhoods or areas are changed uh by now this says by wealthier people moving in but i hear you saying by the people who are living there you can choose to invest in your own community so that you make it attractive to investments without having to go through the phase of tearing the community down uh, so that white people can come in and buy it up. And the reason I think that's so important is because you, you know the side of Malcolm X Boulevard we live on. We ain't going to say yes. it's a national show, but we live on the side. For those yeah. of you who don't know, think about Malcolm X Boulevard in your community because most of us have one. There's one side of Malcolm X Boulevard that might be lovely. <laughs> Stuyvesant Heights, they like to call it in yeah. Bed-Stuy. And then there's the other side of Malcolm X that just ain't. It ain't caught up yet. It ain't, you know, it ain't had the same level of investment. And that's where we right. begin to really see outsiders coming in. Uh, we've called them in my neighbor, in my block association meetings, um, sometimes we've called them settlers, people who are willing mm -hmm. to buy the crack house because even though, Jimmy, I don't do crack and I don't support crack, it's a really cheap property. And I mean, we can just buy it for really low. We don't have to actually live there. We're going to just invest in it um, and these people come from outside the community they're willing to settle in land that we the natives and I'm putting that in air quotes aren't willing to go yeah, to yeah. we've had people who who asked us about uh, coming onto our block we would try to advertise for the block you know when we first got there we wanted to bring other buyers who were of our demographic to the block and I cannot tell you how many friends I had who would say to the effect of oh no way you talking about that side of Malcolm X oh hell no child yeah. there's crack houses over there I ain't going over there and Julian, I cannot tell you to a to a house, every house that was purchased on that block for the next two years was purchased by non-black people. Now the block, the yeah. crack house is a beautiful multifamily property. Uh, the rest of the buildings that were there that were available for black people to buy were not bought by black people because they did not see the vision of investing in community and doing the work of rebuilding. They wanted to move into a place that someone had already done that for. So the settlers or the colonizers, as we can call them, were willing to do that work. Can you talk with us about the decision-making processes that often will drive black people away from investing in lower uh, quality, quote unquote, neighborhoods? Uh, let's talk about that process, because if more black people were willing to do the difficult work of investing in our communities, we really could be reclaiming that phrase of gentrification to mean something very different without sort of the, the morass that we end up finding ourselves in. Yeah, it's very psychological because uh, when grandma bought that house, it was do or die, best die, right? And right, now you right. as the uh, offspring, as her offspring grew up in do or die, best die. So your whole MO since you were young is to get away from that neighborhood, not to stay mm -hmm. there. The mm -hmm. whole MO has been to get away, whether that's through education, whether that's through work, whether that's through travel, you've been trying to get away. Whereas if you just held on 
for a few more decades, you would realize that that neighborhood was going to flip, right? And actually become extremely wow. valuable. And so right. that's the psychological thing that occurs is that people who grew up there have been trying to get away from there because they grew up while it was do or die, bed But now mm. the do or die isn't said anymore. Now it's just bed right? right? And now right. the values of that home has gone up. But again, they are they haven't reinvested into that home so that home can't even command the true value that it should be worth because nobody put money back into it aunts and uncles were living in grandma's house in the attic in basement for free just hoping mm. that this asset would get passed on to them but this asset is getting passed on to them uh at below market value and then neither sibling has enough money to buy the home from their other siblings and they can't agree so they decide to liquidate it liquidate it take cash which is the lowest yielding asset in the entire world and either go south Jeez. or just use the cash to buy liabilities and luxuries. Damn, Julian. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about that mindset then, because it, when, uh, to your point, when my dad found out, may he rest in peace, when he found out that I was moving back to do a diabetes, so he was like, no, the hell you ain't. And I think that was a direct quote because he grew up in that space. Before he his family moved to Harlem, he was in that part of Best Style, right on Halsey. <laughs> and like he was like, no, my child did not go up, go to law school, finish, get married, find a good husband. And now she's going to move back to the hood that I had to flee. But that's kind of the process right if, if we're talking about sort of our experience as black people in this nation that is sort of the process we because when i came in to buy said property uh when brian and i did that we recognized that it was do or die bed style and we had to make some real decisions some of which were not as good as we perhaps could have been but we had to make some decisions about safety we had questions about raising our children and we were able to do it it has not been easy but it has been mm -hmm. so very worth it talk with us about the multifamily component about the work that you're doing where I'm clear on mindset and how we have to do a lot of work of, of changing and shifting the way we see what is investment worthy uh, versus what is fearful you, driving us to leave from a space of fear but let's couple that changed mindset assuming we're able to navigate that and, and secure that and we're on the pathway towards an, a mindset that opens us up to wanting to invest in our community we, we've gotten over sort of the do or die traumas of the childhood we're here we want to invest you have a particular approach to this that does not focus on single family homes and instead focuses on multifamily properties. Why? Correct. So right now, the multifamily movement, um, I'm actually the number one individual and organization in the country that has helped more people close on multifamily homes than any other organization. Yesterday, we had our uh, 400 student close on their first multifamily home. Uh, so together, we uh, closed on about $150 million worth of real estate all across the country. And wow. so um, people are getting what I call rent and mortgage freedom. And you know this from your own experience. Once you buy your first multifamily home, you get to rent and mortgage freedom, meaning that you never have a housing expense for the rest of your life, right? So when I bought that triplex um, in bed I went from paying expensive rent in Brooklyn to being paid expensive rent in Brooklyn, just like that. There's no other singular financial move that you can make that has more power towards the financial trajectory of your life than you acquiring a multifamily home and get, getting rid of the biggest expense in your life, which will be housing. So the rents from the third floor and the second floor were covering my principal, interest, taxes, insurance, capex, repairs, every vacancy rate, and wow. leaving me with cash flow. At no point does a single family home ever pay you unless you sell it. At no point. Mm. And in fact, uh, at, at a 6% interest rate, 
you will actually be paying more in interest over the course of 30 years than you do for the actual home. See, what people don't understand with single family real estate is actually a trap. What they sell you is the sticker price of the home. So they'll say that this home is $300,000. That's the sticker price. It's $300,000 if you have cash. But if you have to finance it at a 6% interest rate, you're going to pay over $300,000 of interest. So not only did you buy yourself a home, you bought your lender a home as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And so on top of that, there's private mortgage insurance, there's your homeowner insurance, there's property taxes. And again, the big M that nobody talks about is maintenance. So now you are in a home for 20 years and you need a new roof. Where's that $10,000 roof coming from, Lori? It's coming mm -hmm. from your retirement. It's coming from your retirement. So now your house continues to take money from you until the day you die. So this is why so many people are house poor, especially now when interest rates are rising. What that means is that their property values are going down and many of them are underwater, meaning that they can't sell without foreclosing, even if they wanted to. So with multifamily real estate, it is the most recession proof asset in the entire world. Okay. Um, uh, not only do our rents going up in the midst of this economic recession, right? But the property values of multifamily real estate are holding or going up as well. And so, if you think about, if you think about um, the feudal system, right? In the feudal system, kings gave land to in exchange for loyalty. So, where do you think the word landlord came from? It came from the feudal system, landlords. So this is an old, old business model. People will always need housing. As long as there are people on this earth, they will always need housing. And people say, Julian, well, everybody, uh, what if you, you want everybody to own, then who's going to rent? People always go through a phase of renting, whether that's coming out of college, whether that's coming out of a divorce, whether it's starting their early career in a new city, there will always be a market for renters who are in transition. Do I want everybody to own? Yes, but there's always going to be a market for renters uh, in this country. If you can provide quality, affordable housing for people, especially in this market where it's going to be harder and harder to afford to own real estate, then the rental uh, demand is going to go up, your rents will go up, and you'll be able to provide housing for somebody until they are able to provide housing for their own family. So that is the business that I'm in, providing quality, affordable housing for people. As a love lord, I make sure that things are fixed within 48 hours. I'm responsive to my tenants. I take care of them. I treat my tenants like family. A lot of my tenants are section eight. They've dealt with slumlords their entire life and I've uplifted their quality of living. And this is part of the reason why they never leave me, right? Is because they've never had a landlord treat them with this much integrity. Right. And this much respect. Wow. And so this is the beautiful thing that I get to provide quality, affordable housing for 70 over 70 people who cannot yet afford to buy a home on their own. So that's the business that I'm in. And in exchange for that, I get rents. Now, let's talk about the mindset of Section 8, because I, some, again, uh, have talked with people about purchasing multifamily properties, uh, inspired and no thanks, uh, in, no thanks in small part to you. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there's two things that I hear. Oh, I don't want to be a landlord because I don't know. I don't want to have to maintain a property. And when I mention Section 8, the response is, "Ooh, girl, they're going to destroy the property. Can you help us speak from personal experience as to how, number one, your experience is in the actual maintenance of the property? I'm assuming you have plumbers, you've got people, electricians that you can call, you've got a Rolodex of people, I would assume, uh, presume. But then I also want to ask you about the mindset that would suggest we should not rent to people who are in Section 8 because of an inherent belief that we have about them not being quality renters. They're going to, and I'm putting that in air quotes, they're going to destroy the property. You've experienced both of those things. Talk with us about what's really good. 
Yeah, so I have properties in Brooklyn, Oakland, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Atlanta. Okay, I only live in one of those cities. So in the other cities, I have property managers and I have real estate Rolodex, like you said, of plumbers, electricians, general contractors, um, et cetera, right? And so I have not fixed a toilet in like... <laughs> Six years, all right? <laughs> I've not fixed not one toilet, all right? You call people. And and so the first thing is a property manager, especially if you're investing from a distance, typically takes anywhere from six to 10% of rents. So if your rents are $4,000 a month, the property manager will get paid $240 uh, to $400 a month to take care of that property and respond to everything, even those 3 a.m. phone calls on your behalf, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that we do as um, ethical investors and as educated investors is that every single month, we set aside 15% of rents in a separate account for future repairs, right? Mm -hmm. So again, if I'm getting $4,000 a month in rent, I'm putting $600 in a separate account for future repairs, for a toilet clog, for rodents, for a leak, anything like that. That's money that I set aside to make sure that when something comes up, there is money there to pay for that fix, right? So that's the first thing. In terms of section eight, I'm not sure where the negative stereotype comes about. I know there's viral videos on, on Instagram and things of that nature of uh, people destroying homes you still get to vet your section eight tenant just like you would vet any other tenant. And so when you meet uh, that tenant or your property manager meets that tenant, you still have to look for signs. How do they treat their kids? How are their clothes? How are they speaking? Are they looking you in the eye? Um, if you can actually visit them at their old place that they're leaving, you can start to see how they're actually living. Therefore, how they will actually treat your property, right? So my section eight tenants have been simply good people who have fallen on hard times. Some of my section eight tenants had to leave New Orleans uh, during Katrina and had just come back and they weren't able to get their footing, right? So there's nothing wrong with these people, right? These are good people who have fallen on hard times. I've had out of all the tenants that I've had over the past nine years of real estate investing, I've had two Section 8 tenants that did not treat my property correctly and they didn't get their deposit back. And that's mm. it. This is just part of the game. So right. uh, that is a negative stereotype. I think that's only a small fraction of, of tenants. In fact, there are, uh, there are market rate tenants who during the pandemic had the ability to pay rent and chose not to pay rent. So don't just look at, don't just look at Canadian tenants as that's anybody on any level. Some of the, some of the dirtiest people are some of the wealthiest people. So it has nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with section eight. That's a small fraction, but of course those videos go viral and people think that's what all section eight tenants do. Section eight, make sure that I get my rents on time, no matter whether the economy is up or down, I get paid on the first online and on time. So if you want to secure your real estate portfolio and not have to worry about market rate tenants, somebody losing their job or something like that, or the CDC issuing a, uh, a, a statement saying nobody has to pay rent in this particular city, Section 8 will prevent you from ever experiencing that and making sure that your mortgage gets paid and that that property stays in your ownership. So I like to secure my portfolio with government money. I pay taxes, so I get those taxes back through Section 8. Now, are you, when it comes to the difference between what you can command with a market rate apartment versus what you can command with a Section 8 apartment, is there a significant difference there? Because I, I, in Brooklyn, I would imagine there has to be a significant difference. So talk to us, uh, it depends talk to us on about the, the difference. It depends on the city. It depends on the city and it depends on um, the uh, the demand for Section 8 in a particular city. So in New Orleans, Section 8 is on par with market rates. It's on par with wow. market rate in New Orleans. In wow. Brooklyn, it's a little bit less. It's a little bit less um, in Brooklyn. But again, if you're in a tenant friendly state and uh, the governor or somebody can uh, and it's hard to evict people, you actually might go with a guaranteed little a little lower amount than um, 
getting a lease for 3200 and having to be uncertain every single month if that tenant is going to pay. And mm. so um, I'd rather go with the guaranteed income, uh, especially in a tenant friendly state, than um, risking it like that. That's a good point. Great distinction. I appreciate that. Uh, so let's say I'm listening in the audience, 866-801-8255, 866-801-TALK. And I want to get started. I'm thinking about, I, I've wanted to invest in some properties and, and maybe as a result of this conversation, I've gone from thinking about, ooh, my first property should be my forever home, my dream home, to thinking, huh, maybe my first property should be an, int- an income generating property for me that will allow me to expand my, my portfolio a bit and actually bring my money in as opposed to just putting money out what are my first few steps how should i be how should i begin approaching the the shift from looking for my my forever home my single family home to being more open to multifamily properties yes so uh the first thing i want everybody to know is that you do not need a real estate license to be a real estate investor a lot of people Mm -hmm. think that's a huge myth for people there's no license required so um when it comes to multifamily real estate the kind that Lori and i are talking about it's two family, three family, and four family homes, okay? This, they go through the same financing process as a single family home. There's no additional steps. The same lender, same 30-year fixed rate, same documents required, all right? Again, that's a two family, three family, or four family home. Once you get to five units or more, that's considered a commercial property, and that's a different lending process. So we're looking for this very specific rare asset, which is a duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Now, what most people do not know, Lori, this is, this is going to blow people's mind. What most people do not understand is that financing for a multifamily home is different than a single family home. If you're buying a single family home and you have $40,000 of W-2 income, the lender will typically pre-approve you for about six times your W-2 income. So $40,000 times six is $240,000, right? What most people don't know is that when you're buying a multifamily home, the lender will give you credit for 75% of the rents that you are going to be getting. Once you close on that property and they'll add that to your W-2 income today. So a $4,000 a month rent property, right? At 3,000, 75% is 3,000 a month times 12 months is $36,000. So the lender will take that $36,000. They'll add it to your $40,000 of W-2 income and qualify you based on $76,000, not $40,000. So now you're able to buy up $156,000 of real estate off the same W-2 income. Right. So now what that what that means is that it's actually easier for you to buy a multifamily home than it is to buy a single family home because mm-hmm. you get that income rental income credit based on the lender's underwriting process. So you can buy more real estate, almost twice as much real estate when you buy multifamily as opposed to single family. So wow. that's the first thing. The second thing is that a lot can happen over 30 years. You can get divorced. You can lose your job. You can go through a physical disability, mental illness, car accident. A lot can happen. When you have a single family home, something happens to you over the course of 30 years. Who's there to help you pay your mortgage? Jesus. Nobody. <laughs> You're right. Right. And you know, these churches are giving no money back to the community. So it ain't coming from Jesus. You mean I can't right? get my tithes so, back from the church and put it towards my roof for pay? back even if you're in foreclosure, right? Mm. So there's that. When you have a multifamily home, you've been living in one unit for free the entire time. Even if something happens to you and knocks you off your feet over the course of 30 years, guess what? Your tenants are still paying the principal interest, tax insurance, capex repairs, or vacancy wow. rate. So not only is it easier to get a multifamily home than it is a single family home, it's actually easier to keep a multifamily home than it is a single huh. family home because there's a business tied to your actual home, right? So this is the power of multifamily real estate. There are also $0 down, down payment programs out there that many people don't know about. The one that I refer people to mostly is NACA, N-A-C-A.com. Oh, yes. No yeah, yeah, yeah. money down. 
no money down. So a lot of people think, oh, Julian, I can't save up for the down payment. Uh, there's zero dollar down down payment programs out there. After that, there's the F government's FHA program, which, which is only three and a half percent down, right? That's how I bought my property in Brooklyn with three and a half percent down. And then if your income is great, um, then there's then there's uh, conventional loans. But the other thing is that people think that they need their credit score to be perfect or 700 or something like that in order to get started. NACA does not take your credit score into consideration. How NACA finances is they look at if you've been paying rent on time consistently over the past three months, so let's say your rent is $2,000 a month, right? And then you're able to also show them that you're able to save $500 a month on top of that. NACA will qualify you for up to $2,500 per month. No credit score consideration wow. whatsoever. So I've literally had a student buy a uh, over a million dollar property in Brooklyn. And guess how much he had to come out of pocket? $4,716. Wow. He bought a triplex in Brooklyn, New York, over a million dollars, and his only money out of pocket was $4,716. And this was in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn, New York. Come on now. We have actually, uh, <laughs> Brittany Airhorn, uh, something. Can we do a, an applause, a, a clap, a ding? There we go. There we go. Uh, we actually have a caller on the line who has a question for you, Julian. A Liddell in, I think this is Louisiana, uh, in first time caller. Hey, Liddell. Absolutely. Go right ahead. I am. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually originally from New Orleans. I've lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana now. And I'm also looking into um, actually buying my first um, home. So I was, I, I think with listening to Julian and I think I follow them on Facebook. Um, but I do believe that, you know, building communities we have to go back to building communities. And with that is, you know, investing in the communities that we want to build up. So um, thanks for taking my call. And I'm just looking at getting into a position where I can help build the community. Mm. I appreciate that. Liddell, thank you so much for calling and thank you for listening. Uh, Julian, we, we just have a minute or two left, but I think Liddell is bringing us back to that love lord uh, ethic, and which is something that really resonates powerfully with me. Uh, the idea that we can own properties, we can provide housing for people out of a sense of almost mission or duty, uh, and the idea mm -hmm. that we are able to uh, really make sure that we are shifting their relationship between the properties. You know, a lot of times people will say, if they don't own the property, they're not going to take care of it. But I think your point has been that by showing that you can be a compassionate uh, homeowner, that you are someone who cares about the quality of life of your tenants, you actually can skip that entire model and you can create an environment where people who are renting um, are thinking about how to maintain a healthy relationship with the building because that allows them to maintain a healthy relationship with you. Uh, can you speak to that just a bit in the moment or two we have left? Yeah, very much so. So um, when I go by some of my properties, the tenants are actually taking care of the outside. I've had tenants plant mm -hmm. flowers in front of some buildings, so making sure the porch is clean. I didn't ask them to do that. They just do it because it, this is home for them, right? Yeah. It's like really home for them. And I don't want anybody to be renting from me permanently. Uh, ultimately, I would love for all my tenants to, to eventually own on their own. But uh, for right now, because of how I treat them and how I take care of them, they they not only reciprocate through paying rent, but they also reciprocate by taking care of the property. Um, mm. So this is what my experience has been, but that's based on the how I respect and treat them. Um, and they reciprocate uh, through how they maintain the property. So 
uh, I haven't had that experience. Um, and I mean, I just have a big wow. heart. I, I love people. I care for not only the adult tenants, but I especially care for the children. Um, you know, if an AC is not working. Oh, wait, you, you're open to working. children living in your property? Is that what I hear you say? Because I see that a lot. I don't want nobody with no kids. So you you are completely throwing that traditional model Actually, out the window. Especially, especially me. I, 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 do I want them living in the projects? No. Ooh. I don't want them living in the projects. We know how external environments affect kids' growth and development. So if I can provide a stable housing environment, even though I'm not the father for some, some other person's kids, then I'm happy and excited to do that. This is why we appreciate you, brother, because <laughs> what you just said right there, I think that is exactly how we need to shift our mindset. And that's why I wanted someone like you to talk about this multifamily real estate investing, as opposed to some of the other folks out there, because it's coupled with that Ujamaa understanding. We can all yes. win. And if I put my personal selfishness aside, and if I put my stereotypical beliefs, and let's just call it what it is, anti-Black approach to uh, viewing the community, if I put that to the side, I really can, should I be so blessed to be able to own a property, I really can be in a situation where it is mutually beneficial where we are rebuilding the village and that last point where when are kids supposed to go if you don't provide for them and you're not able to do that if we people who have the resources are not willing to provide for our children and we know we're consigning them to living in environments that are going to be harmful to them or can be um then you've just sort of answered the question as it is how do people connect with you sir how can they follow you take you because i know you teach about this you, you're not just doing it in in small yeah. pockets you've got a, a nationwide program at this point how can people connect with you further yeah, the easiest way to learn about the game is I do a webinar periodically at rentfree.com. <laughs> Very simple, rentfree.com. <laughs> if you're trying to get rid of your rent payment or your single family mortgage, go to rentfree.com and uh, you can sign up for my next webinar and I'll teach you everything that I know about multifamily real estate um, in hopes that it helps you close on your first home. Um, as Lurie said, uh, if we're talking about it takes a village to raise a child, but guess what? A village requires land. A village actually requires real estate. We can't be talking about a village if we don't own anything. And so this is a real key component. Um, this is a real key component. I mean, Lurie, you've been able to stay in Brooklyn. I eventually left. But, you know, our little some people tried. Many people left because they didn't own. So the village gets broken up because people don't own. I thought we would be with those families forever. Right. But as people got priced out of the market, they didn't buy when you and I bought guess what? Right. They had to go leave because they wanted to own, but they could not own in Brooklyn. So right. if we really want to talk about a village, it has to come with land and the real estate that is on top of that land. And so this is a key component if we really want to experience freedom in this country. Mm. He makes it simple. Rentfree.com. Is that the website? That's the website. <laughs> Rentfree.com. He keeps it real simple. And you are so right, brother. I have had no fewer than at least 10 conversations with people who were in our position uh, many, many years ago, did not buy for whatever reason. And they did have to not just leave Brooklyn. A lot of them have left this state entirely. Uh, by the grace mm -hmm. of God, that is not something we have had to do. We were able to keep our property there. But the reality is um, that is simply not the case. And I think if we had a different approach to land ownership, to real estate investing, we might find that a lot fewer of us were as easily displaced as we are uh, because we, we will be able to ensure against those troubles. Thank you so much for this. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate this. I hope we can get you to come back because uh, I know that there are more questions. I know that there are other folks who are trying to call in. Y'all can't be calling in at the end of the show. I be telling y'all, we only got an hour for this segment. Yeah. <laughs> Julian, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you here.